Welcome to Tartan Talk with USA Kilts, our interview series where we chat with interesting people in the Celtic heritage scene, industry insiders, artists, influencers, you name it. Come with us as we highlight unique perspectives and inside stories. So sit back, grab your beverage of choice, and enjoy the conversation. Barb, thank you for coming down to visit us today. Author, kilt maker, bagpiper, geologist, professor. What do you not do, lady? Um, tell me, how did you how did you have so many passions? How did all this come about? So I'm really delighted to be here too. It's, it's been fun seeing your shop and uh, and seeing all of the work that you've done over the last 20 years of building <laughs> this place. Um, I'm a geologist and I've uh, taught geology for about 45 years and I got interested in geology largely because of my family and uh, my parents my mom was an organic chemist and my dad was a research physicist and I grew up in the 1950s and the 1960s when it probably wasn't all that common for for girls to be interested in science or mm -hmm. to be interested in going outdoors and backpacking and things like that but my parents took me skiing and they took me backpacking and they took me out to the Canadian Rockies and um, I went to climbing school in the early 1960s and I took an earth science class when I was in ninth grade and I realized I could do science and I could do it outside and I went to college to major in geology. I wanted to be a geologist right from, from the get-go and, uh, and it was largely because of my parents that, uh, that they made me feel it was possible at a time when that really wasn't possible for, for, for many girls. Nice. It's it, it's nice to hear a story of, uh, you know, all parents obviously want the best for their kids, but it's nice to hear a story of parents exposing their kids to, no, you can do anything. Here, let me show you all the stuff. And it's it's neat because you eventually find the thing, or it's it's easier to find the thing that you want to kind of sink your teeth into. Uh, but when you were saying that, I had I had visions of you rock repelling halfway down a mountain, and then like hand sewing a kilt on your knee halfway down a mountain. Well, geology happened a lot sooner than, than kilt making did. Fair. Uh, but it was, my, it was my family, too, that, that enabled me to ultimately really get interested in kilt making because I grew up in a family where making things was really important. And it wasn't just making things. It was doing a really good job at making things. My dad was an exceptional woodworker all his life. My mom was... Um, a seamstress, as well as being an organic chemist. And she taught me how to sew by sitting me down at the sewing machine when I was five or six years old. And I learned how to sew and knit and embroider. And I made all my clothes through middle school and high school. So that was, that was part of it. And she was also a weaver. She, she became quite a well-known weaver nationally while my sister and I were growing up. And uh, she taught me how to weave. And Interestingly enough, some of the early fabric that I wove was tartan. Hmm. Um, and that ties back to the other part of my family that's really important, and that's my dad's Scottish heritage. My dad was just passionately uh, Scottish, and uh, he had a vast collection of tartan ties, and he wore one to work every single day. He had a collection of uh, three or four tartan dressing gowns and, and things like that. And, and my grandmother played Scottish music on, on the piano. So I, I grew up in, in that kind of a, a culture where, where Scotland was really, really important and it was a, a really huge part of my ancestry. So again, family was really important for both geology and, and ultimately for the kind of handcrafts that, that I got involved in. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see, you know, just the, the family ripple effect mm. that it has on you know everyone's lives but it's you know because he is scottish that got you interested and you can remember his parents you know and all of that that makes so much sense and it's but it's neat to see how it imprints on our kids like what the things that we teach them at a young age they may not feel you may not feel like they're getting it or if you know it's like you know you're, like you're banging your head against the wall as a parent like why aren't they understanding this or why aren't they doing this the way i want them to do but it does actually sink in and it's neat to see it kind of blossom later in life sometimes it just kind of the seeds lay dormant if you will and then you kind of blossom in their 20s or 30s yep absolutely so tell me about your your first kilt 
How, what, what was your first kilt making experience? Oh, my first kilt making experience, I, I, I dearly wish I still had this kilt. But my parents took my sister and me to Scotland in the mid-1960s. And since I was sewing all my own clothes and I loved Scottish stuff and I'd spent, I, we had that little, that little red um, uh, Royal Stewart covered tartan book. And I remember looking through that many, many times as a kid. And so I was really interested in tartan. And I was, I was sewing. So I, I asked my parents if we could go somewhere where I could buy some tartan so I could take it home and make a kilt. Nice. And uh, so I, I chose the Loud McLeod. <clears throat> and I took the fabric home. And I made myself a garment that was pleated in the back and had aprons in the front. I didn't have any idea what I was doing, not the slightest idea. But I wore that kilt through high school. I had it in college. I still wish I had it today. And I just, I, I don't know what I did with it, but, but it's not around anymore. And I, I actually did not encounter kilts again until our daughter, Carolyn, was 10 years old in 1995. And she decided she wanted to take Highland dancing lessons. And, uh, she had lessons for a year, and at the end of that year, she wanted to go to Highland Dance Camp. And so she went to Highland Dance Camp, and they had a companion kilt-making camp. And I figured, oh, I love tartan. I love fabric. I've been sewing all my life. I should just go make her a kilt. Why should I buy a kilt from somebody else? And that's where I met Elsie Stumeyer, who, um, uh, she, Elsie Scott Stumeyer, so she was Scottish. And she apprenticed in Glasgow in the in 1947 as a kilt maker, and had been making kilts in Scotland and the U.S. since that time for 60 or 70 years. So um, that was the very first real kilt I made in the dress Ferguson tartan. Nice. So uh, Elsie is the the author, the co-author, I should say, mm -hmm. of your of the book, um, The Art of Kilt Making, is Barb Tewksbury and Elsie Stumeyer. Um, so how did how did you go from student, like a week-long course or whatever it was, you know, sitting with Elsie, you know, in that class to actually, you know, authoring a book with her? So that all ties to me being a professor, <laughs> actually. Um, so Elsie teaches kilt making very much in the apprenticeship style. She would demonstrate and we would work and she would demonstrate and we would work. And I knew darn well it was so complicated that I was not going to remember any of these instructions unless I took notes. And I realized also that I had to take illustrated notes. And so I went home at the end of that with 32 pages of handwritten notes and diagrams of what I had done so that I could actually make a kilt again. And I went home, I actually went to Joanne Fabrics and I bought some tartan to make a second kilt because I knew if I didn't do it right away, the mm -hmm. notes wouldn't make any sense to me still. Um, so I had this big packet of, of notes because I, I knew I needed them. And, um, and Elsie called me up. Uh, I had called her to ask her a couple of questions about kilt making. And, and um, she called me up and said, look, you know, people have been after me to write a book on kilt making. And, and I'm just not, I'm not going to do that. Would you um, be interested in taking your notes and making a book out of them? And, you know, it's a funny thing. Um, part, part of me wanted to do it because this is particularly the kind of kilt making that Elsie does is traditional. It's the way kilts were made in Scotland 60, 70 years ago. And um, although there are many different ways of making kilts, this particular way was being transmitted um, in occasional workshops. And it was in many ways kind of, it was a guild craft that this way of making kilts would be lost when someone like Elsie passed on. And it was really important to me that somewhere, this was written down. It was written down, it was illustrated so that somebody a hundred years from now could pick up this book and get a piece of fabric and by the time they'd worked their way patiently through the book, they would have a kilt on the other end. And, the, and that meant that the instructions had to be detailed, really detailed, and well illustrated. Because 
A kilt, as you know, is an entirely different kind of garment. If you've sewn shirts and pants and dresses and prom dresses and wedding dresses, this is an entirely different garment because you don't cut pieces yeah. and you don't have a pattern. And the number of decisions that you have to make as you're making a kilt are huge. And it's all because every time you get a new person, it's a different size, which would be normally true with a, a regular garment, but it's also every tartan is different. So even if you have three kilts in the same tartan, you have to make different kinds of decisions if you've got a medium-sized person, a big one, and a little one. Mm -hmm. So trying to get a set of instructions that accounted for that is not an easy thing. And in fact, I brought two things with me um, that were available at the time. So in the early 1990s, Janet Ferguson Leslie Cananito wrote a, a slim little volume on how to make a kilt. Right. And there was also a set of instructions in the folkwear pattern, but about yep. the same age, early, yeah. early yeah. 1990s. And what's really interesting about the instructions is that they're not wrong. But there's a lot of gaps. There's a lot of gaps. And, and if you already know how to make a kilt, the instructions make sense. But if you have to start from scratch with these instructions and a piece of fabric, there's so many places where the gaps really matter. And so I, I thought, well, this is an opportunity to not only preserve a guild craft, but to take my expertise as a professor. I write all kinds of stuff for my students. They don't, in many cases, know anything about what they're going to be doing in a lab. I write the stuff. I have to write it so it's understandable. I have to illustrate it so it's understandable. So I thought, this is something I can do. I, I know I can do it. So do you think your, uh, at that time, general noviceness or, or, you know, in the craft helped you in a weird way? <laughs> yeah. Because you're like, I need to write down every single thing that I didn't know when I read this. Or you had a different perspective on writing it, um, A, from your attention to detail, B, your professorship, um, but C, from being a novice in the craft that someone, like if Elsie tried to write it, she herself, she may have ended up with something like that, where there was gaps because she just did the arithmetic in her head mm -hmm. versus, you know, like didn't carry the one and put the little number up top. She just did it. And then the person doesn't understand what they're doing. I, th I think that's probably true. I was close enough to learning how to do it the first time that it was easier for me to see what needed to be explained. Also, I'm dealing, used to dealing with novices. And Fair. so I need to know at, at what level of detail think explanations need to take place. But um, I was worried that I didn't know everything that needed to go into the book or that I'd have questions. And so I actually, the second year Carolyn went to dance camp, I decamped Deansboro, New York with my computer, printer, and sewing stuff. And I parked myself in the corner of the, the kilt camp room and I sat and wrote essentially the entire book in a week, all 145,000 words. I just sat down and wrote the instructions. And if I had a question, I went over and talked to Elsie and I said, you know, I wanna make sure I've got this right. Yeah. And, um, and that's, how, that's how the book got, well, that's how the book got written. Yeah. Did you, um, at any point in writing the book, and I understand your, the mantle that you put on yourself in wanting to make sure we're preserving the craft, um, did you, at any point, were you putting additional pressure on yourself of, I need to make sure this reflects well on Elsie and her knowledge, um, and you as essentially the interpreter of Elsie's words and Elsie's ideas for the audience? Absolutely, because I understood the instructions. I understood the, the purpose of, of what was happening. But yes, this was very much... There was, this was very much her life's work, and I wanted to make sure that it was represented well so that it didn't go out there and people were, I can't use this book, you know? Yeah, no, I think that is something that you absolutely nailed, um, you know, just due to the popularity of the book and due to the ease of how it is, you know, to read the book. I remember when, uh, when we first started, uh, our company started back in 2003, and I never had sewn a kilt and we were kind of figuring it out from scratch, from the lower end, and then kind of getting better and better over time. 
don't look at any of our early kilts, by the way. <laughs> <clears throat> but I remember, you know, trying to figure things out and then uh, a, a band or something would come in and say, hey, can you, can you adjust our kilt? Or the lining started coming out, can you resew the lining? So then we would kind of look at things and how other kilt mm -hmm. makers did things. Um, and I remember back in, it must have been, oh, 2004, maybe 2005, where you know, through X marks, I found out about this book mm -hmm. and ended up buying this book for myself. And I'm like, oh, okay, this makes more sense. And just kind of using my own engineering type brain to pick apart how you were doing things and then applying it to how we were doing things um, to come up with our own way to make kilts um, and using the best of your techniques, but adapting it for machine work. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah, yeah, absolutely. How did you end up getting the book published? So now you have the book written. Oh. I'm assuming Elsie has given her blessing. Yes. Um, then what was the next steps in the process? Uh, I, had, I had some sketch illustrations, but I really didn't think I wanted to do all of the illustrations for a book because I thought there would be somebody else who could draw better than I can and so on. Um, so I had to try to hunt down a publisher. And I tried five or six different publishers. And the bottom line was if they felt they couldn't sell 50,000 books, it was yeah. a non-starter. And at that point, I just, I threw up my hands and said, okay, I've got a computer. I know how to draft. I can, I can, I can do uh, InDesign and all of this. I can, I can write this whole thing myself. And my husband's a photographer, was a photographer at the time. Still does photography, but he did it commercially and had a studio. Yeah. Um, and he could do my photographs for me. And so at that point, I sat down and drew all 150 diagrams in there. That took quite. That took a, a month or more to I do imagine. all those those diagrams that are hand inked and then he scanned them and and then we put the the text and the and the photographs into the the book and I took it on a CD at the time they didn't have DVDs took it as a, on a CD down to uh, Canterbury Press and they printed the printed the book and um, uh, at the time, I had 4,000 copies printed. So basically, I paid up front to, to have yeah. the book printed. And then I sent out all the books as they, as they were ordered. Um, and then I ran out of books in 2006. And we decided to reprint the book to correct two typos that we had caught. And, um, only two. In only a, two. And a book that massive is pretty... Well, pretty impressive. Dave and I don't know how many times we read through the text to each other. So Dave had the text. I would read it and he'd go, nope, there's a mistake there. And we'd mark it. And so we don't want any mistakes in this because, man, a how-to book, you got mistakes in it. That's yeah. that's yeah. that's lethal. Um, so I had it printed again. And so uh, all totaled, I think I had about 10,000 printed. And I probably have six or seven books left from that printing. And at that point, this was, this was just before COVID. Um, I was looking down the pike, I'm 72 now. And I was thinking, do I want to spend the next eight years sending out another four or 5,000 books? And, and I thought, no, I really didn't want to do that. And so I went with Amazon self-publishing and it was very simple, very easy. And it's, um, it goes out from their office so I don't have to do a thing. And it's still, it's still in print and it means that when I can no longer do this, it can go it out. Remains. My, it remains yeah. and my daughter will have it to, to not have to worry about. And it's, it's weird because I think about um, videos the same way and doing videos and making sure when we're putting videos up on YouTube or whatever that they're going to live beyond us. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's part of the reason why we do these types of things. Um, and it's, it's neat to see a parallel in the book world uh -huh. of, okay, well, if I want it to exist forever and to be able to pass this knowledge on and make sure it doesn't you know, uh, you know, die with the last yeah. printing run that we did, to have something like Amazon, a print-on-demand kind of service, makes sense. Um, and I'm, I'm happy that you've done that because it ensures the longevity of the book. So 
I'm going to do a mini commercial. If anyone out there wants a copy of the book, go to Amazon. Um, I should say that my mom, as a weaver, wrote a book on early American coverlets. And one of her profound frustrations was she went with a with a press. And um, after three or four years, because of depreciation of stock books, it went out of print. Hmm. And it was never available again. And that that actually colored my uh, interest in, in self-publishing so that I could keep it on the on the market. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, 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 didn't interrupt at all. But the one thing I think you've said it and I 100% agree with you is that even if you're, you don't want to make a kilt or you have no desire or you don't have any knowledge of sewing, if you just love kilts, buying the book or reading the book um, just to understand the process and understand the art form and understand what goes into it and why things cost what they do. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me just from a dissemination of the knowledge and appreciation of the craft. That's true and there, there are a number of pictures in here of kilts that are not well constructed and, and, and are, are obvious. There are things you can see from the outside of a kilt things where the stripes don't match and a variety of things like that where it helps somebody to, to assess a kilt that they pick up too. Yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. the knowledge of those different things, you know, the, the pluses and the minuses, mm -hmm. um, you know, and adding those all up to yeah. equal a good kilt. Um, so I'm curious, your, uh, your position as a traditional hand-sewn kilt maker and my, my personal favorite hand-sewn kilt maker, <laughs> um, but uh, how do you feel about machine-sewn kilts versus hand-sewn kilts, assuming Scottish, you know, eight yards of Scottish cloth mm -hmm. or, you know, proper wool cloth? Sure. I, I think that there are lots of different ways of making kilts. Um, and I know that many machine-sewn kilts are stitched where you can see the stitching on the outside. You make fabulous kilts where you you stitch on the inside from the inside and, and match the stripes and they look absolutely fantastic. Uh, honestly, to me, the big thing is that any kilt maker should be honest about their their methods. And you know, it's a machine sewn kilt. This is how we make our machine sewn kilts. This is a hand sewn kilt. This is a mix. Um, as long as people know what it is they're getting, then I think that's perfectly fine. My niche is very small in the kilt world and mm -hmm. in the tartan world and tartan fashion in general. I, I make kilts that are made by, the, by traditional methods that are, are, uh, have been used in Scotland for a long time. Not, I don't do everything the same way that every other kilt maker does. There are certain things that even hand-sewn, um, people who make hand-sewn kilts do differently. Uh, but that's my niche, and it's something I enjoy, and it's something I'm good at. And it doesn't make my kilt any more worthwhile or valuable than a kilt that has machine sewing in it, as long as people who want a hand-sewn kilt actually get a hand-sewn kilt mm -hmm. and, and so on. So I think it's, I'm totally fine with it. So no, I, and I feel the same way. As long as it's, I've seen, and I've said before, I've seen good quality hand-sewn kilts and poor quality hand-sewn mm -hmm. kilts, good quality machine-sewn and poor quality machine-sewn. It all boils down to the individual actually making the thing, their level of training, their level of knowledge for their craft. Mm -hmm. And your craft is different than my craft, is different than other companies' crafts. Um, but as long as they are good at their craft, there's a bunch of different ways to get to the same, to the same place. And I think we both agree that there are a certain number of things have to be right for a kilt to be a good kilt. Mm -hmm. It has to fit, right? You give somebody the measurements or you get measurements from someone, and if you can't make a kilt to fit those measurements, it's not a good kilt, right? Yeah. And if this, if it's striped or tart, striped fabric, tartan fabric, the stripes better match, yep. right? The stair effect. The stair, on yeah, the you back don't want stair steps, of, or, yeah, yeah uh, across the back. Um, and you want the kilt to hold its shape. If the kilt gets buckled on tightly, you don't want to buckle it on. Every time you buckle it on, the back stretches and gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually the, the, the stitching fails. Um, you want it to be kind of bomb-proof. You want it to last. Mm -hmm. Somebody wants to wear it for the next 20 years. 
you don't want the stitching to fail. You don't want the, the, the threads to break and so on. Um, and you want to make sure that, uh, that there's a little bit of flare at the top of the kilt so that it actually stays put at somebody's waist and it's not forever sagging and dropping down. And those are the sorts of things that have absolutely nothing to do with whether it's hand-sewn, machine-sewn, or some combination. It's those things that make a kilt a good kilt mm -hmm. for someone. And, and I, I love getting into the weeds and the details on things. Um, and I, you and I are very much simpatico on this, is just knowing the details and thinking about the tiny little things. Like the one, uh, the one thing that we had discussed um, when I was looking at your kilts in my office earlier that, you know, you do inherently almost the exact same way we do it is putting the, the, the kilt strap or the kilt buckle that goes through the hole mm -hmm. in the kilt just either in line with or over top of the hole. So when you put the strap on, you're pulling on the buckle, you're not pulling on the hole um, where it's a point of failure on so many kilts. So it's, it's interesting to see different people in this space um, picking out different details and innovating in, mm -hmm. in even in minute, tiny little details um, and just to make a better thing over time. Yeah. And if it's, if it's a better idea, eventually it'll catch on and more and more people will do that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me this. Um, I'm sure you've been asked this many times before. Um, how many, do you know how many stitches go into a hand-sewn kilt, one of yours, and or how long does it take to make a kilt soup to nuts from getting the cloth to, you know, handing it over? Yeah. I have never counted how many how many stitches? You're not that masochistic. Not, not that, not that one stitch, yeah, tally mark. One tally stitch, tally mark. mark. <laughs> you have a little clicker over here going. Yeah, a referee standing <laughs> yeah, behind right. it. Yeah, and I think one of the things that people don't realize is that when you do a hand sewn kilt, there's a huge amount of basting that that you baste you and take out. out. Yep. But just in a in a, a pleat alone, say a, a pleat is is seven inches long. Um, there are eight to ten stitches per inch, so you know we're looking at at uh, you know seventy stitches at a minimum in just one pleat. Times thirty pleats. Times thirty pleats. You know you, this adds up pretty fast. Um, so there's it. You know, there really there's lot there's lots of stitching, but you know it goes when you get good at this, it, it goes fairly fast. It took me almost forty hours to make my first kilt. And that's that's pretty typical, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's pretty typical. The kilt making workshops that I've run are typically six days, and mostly everybody gets close to being done by the end. So you know, we're talking about, mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot, a lot of time. Um, it now takes me, if we're talking about, from the the moment I start to lay out the kilt until I take out the basting somewhere between 18 and 20 hours okay. to make a kilt. Um, and <clears throat> I've talked with people who claim they can make a hand-sewn traditional eight-yard kilt in 10 hours. <laughs> and I don't know how they do it. Time-lapse photography. Time-lapse <laughs> photography. Yeah, uh, all I can think is that they don't put all of the interior construction in that I do. And they, and some of it's pretty obvious because they don't take as many stitches as I do. So yeah. you know, put four or five stitches in a, in a pleat. So that that really can take a lot less time to do. But I think many people who make kilts and pride themselves on being able to do it that fast um, are just making them differently than I am, and perhaps leaving out some of the steps that I would think are pretty important for longevity for yeah. having a kilt that lasts. The the, the biggest thing that I will see failure-wise on a hand-sewn kilt, which you see less of on machine-sewn, and I'm not comparing mm -hmm. one is better than the other, mm -hmm. um, is you know because the, the amount of stitches takes the time, especially in the pleats, um, whenever I've talked about hand-sewn kilts. I've never made one. I have never made a hand-sewn kilt. I kind of want to, but I, I'm not, I don't want to. <laughs> um, but I always talk about having a minimum of eight stitches per inch. Mm -hmm. Like it's, and a lot of times when it's either like cotton thread or lesser quality thread, it's aged over time, it may, it may snap. Or if you only have four stitches per inch, then what ends up happening is each of those stitches takes more stress 
And then that's, that's right. where it tends to fail. Um, so that's where a lot of time can be made up is in you know sure. four stitches per inch versus eight or ten. Yeah. But that is, in my opinion, you know, it should be eight inches or eight eight inches, eight stitches per inch minimum, because um, it's you know an eighth. You know, if you think about a ruler. So that's that's kind of where I would go for like bare minimum of quality on stitches per inch in a kilt. But there's obviously on a machine sewn kilt. It's very, very easy for me to say that because if you just crank the dial and all of a sudden yeah. your stitch width comes down. Yeah, yeah. So what other, what other bugaboos do you have, do you typically see um, where people would cut corners in, in kilts? So one of the most common ones is very difficult to, to actually analyze for because um, you can't see the inside of the kilt. But um, I put a non-stretchy stabilizer right at the, the waist top of the kilt not, not all the way to the top, but right at the buckle line across the pleats. Because what you want to do is have the person put on and buckle everything but the part that you've stitched, in a sense. You want the stress to be taken up by other aspects of the, of the inside of the kilt, not by the stitching between the pleats. Um, and if you pick up a kilt without a stabilizer and somebody lets you do it, you can actually pull it and stretch it. And you right. can feel that. Um, and, th and if that's the, that's the way this kilt is made, you don't want that because if you wear it very much, it's going to get two or three inches bigger as, well, I exaggerate a bit, but yeah. as, as you wear it and ultimately things are going to fail. Um, the other place is in what's called the steaking. Um, and the steaking is, it's a Gaelic word meaning stitching actually. Um, but when um, the pleats fold over, on the inside of the back of the kilt, and you trim out scallop out the all scallop, the guts. take yeah. out the extra because it's an off, it's too thick and to so to want to wear, yep. right? Um, and so what you do is you take some he very heavy thread and do a, a a line of stitching that secures each one of the pleats to each one of the other ones, and um, and I know you know that yeah, I'm yeah. explaining no, it for everybody else. Understood. Um, and. Um, some people who, who take shortcuts don't bother to do that. They just kind of baste along to make sure that they're not flopping while they're working on the kilt. And then they use the lining fabric to hold those pleats together. And if they've stitched the lining in and that stitching breaks, then the, they the pleats, kinda, they all bleh. just kind of, yep. they, they kind of get flabby. Yep. Um, I think those are, those are two things. And I think that the other thing that I've seen on the inside of kilts is people who use basting thread to put the canvas in. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. That, that was that was a stunner to me. Yeah, no, um, it's, it needs to be a sturdy thread, at least the same quality thread as the, yeah. as the you know, as, it does. or something heavier. Yeah. And and I think the the other thing that um, that I'm particularly critical of is the shaping of the top of the kilt. So um, if, if you have someone with a, a large waist hip differential, which is typical of female pipers, female dancers, and so on, um, then what the temptation is, is to put darts in in various places to take in some of that, um, that difference. And what that does then, particularly if you taper the edges of the apron and the under apron to the very top, you taper all the pleats to the very top, and you put darts in the front, is the kilt is smaller around at the top band than it is at the buckle, buckle line. Yeah. And everybody's body is bigger around up here, two inches above their true waist. And so that means if you put the kilt on with the kilt at the right height up here and it's snug around here, it's gonna be baggy around your waist. No matter how tight you pull it, it's yep. gonna drop right down to your waist. Yeah. And you can see this in a lot of band kilts. And it's, and a, a kilt can be exquisitely sewn, and yet there's nothing you can do about that other than take it apart and try to fix certain aspects of it to make it a little bit bigger around at the top. Yeah. Because of the rise. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that uh, I've seen on several kilts, I'll, I'll lump them, uh, two of them. Again, it, it generally, when, when someone cuts a corner, it's generally the inside because you can't see mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, is either fusible interfacing? Yeah. Oh goodness. Or yes. 
no interfacing or no canvas on the inside. Um, I know there's, you know, we've gotten some band kilts in and it's, you know, you pull up the lining and there's nothing. Um, or it's fusible interfacing, which will over time, the glue will release um, and it's just serving no purpose. It's just kind of floating underneath the, the thing. Have you seen much of that or? I haven't taken many kilts apart because when people ask me if I will alter a kilt, I simply tell them, unless I made it, I won't alter it because we have the same thing. Yeah. Yes. We stopped doing it as well for that exact reason. Yeah. You don't know what you're going to find inside. Yeah. Um, yeah. But fusible interfacing is great stuff. But the way people sweat in a band kilt or in a kilt if they wear it a lot, that's just going to get flabby over time and it's going to come loose. And then it's worse than having nothing at all. Is there anything in the community that you wish would change or wish would you know stay the same for for forever like if you had a magic wand and you could say hanukkah danica let's go <laughs> this is never going to change or it's going to change instantly what would that be um i think i think in the kilt making world what i would like to see is more transparency about what kind of kilts people are making what the materials are from, who makes them, are they hand-sewn, are they machine-sewn, that kind of thing. Because I think people who don't know a lot about kilts take on faith what they see on the web and don't know how to assess whether what they are about to order or what they have received is what they should be getting for what they saw on the, on the web. So to me, I wish a little more honesty and transparency um, amongst advertisers and not all kilt makers because some people are in fact ethical, but I mm -hmm. think ethics really matters. And um, so I, I hope that, I, w I would wish, magic wand, that people could be more ethical. Let, let's explore the ethical mm -hmm. thing for a little bit. What are some of the things that you've seen that really grind your gears? It's the, the, the pebble in your shoe that the examples of the things that you want to stop happening? Um, image theft is one of the things that really upsets me. And ignorance uh, is not any defense because anybody who's running a business should know what is legal and what is not legal with images that are on the internet. They should understand copyright. And they should understand that <clears throat> it's entirely possible to contact the photographer and say, may I use your image for? And chances are, if you ask, the answer will be okay, or $50 or something like that. Right. Um, and yet people have taken images directly off of my website and put them up in various places on online for kilts for sale and so on and so forth. And um, it's so easy. It's so easy on the internet, and people think, well, if it's mm -hmm. up there, it's free. Anybody can use it. And I'm sorry, that's yeah, <laughs> that's just not the case. The there's I I have a little bit of a, a soft spot for educational or fair use in practice kind of thing. Um, the versus a business selling yeah. something and using your photo to sell their product, or you know, a Margaret Morrison Sporin to sell something made in Pakistan saying, nope, this is what it is. And that's not what you physically get when it arrives. Yeah. That's what drives me batty about the, about that. Yes. That's right. Yeah. And there are, there are different rules for educational fair use, for instance, yeah. that, that uh, I think are, are quite reasonable, yeah. but it's people who are running a, a cheap kilt shop in Pakistan and take a photo off of your website or something like that and put it up as, as a representation of what they're selling of kilt in a particular tart. Yeah. yeah. My, my other one is, uh, uh, aside from image theft, would be just transparency on, on the details or on, on country of manufacture. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're making something yourself, great, say you're making it yourself. If you're you know, importing the fabric, say this is imported fabric mm -hmm. made here, or this is you know, cloth woven in the UK made here, or whatever. Um, but that transparency a hundred percent is something and, and honesty is something that I wish more companies did better. I don't think everyone does it poorly. I don't think, you know, 
you and I are the only ones who are honest. Um, I just wish it was a higher percentage than it possibly is. One of the things I really like about the kind of kilt making that I do, because I had a career as a geologist, I never actually had a website to sell kilts because I just do business by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. um, and it means that I can develop a personal relationship with every single person I make a kilt for. And so we do a lot of back and forth and it, it helps with the transparency um, in a way that is hard for somebody who has a, 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 a big shop of some kind or another. Yeah, changing tack a little bit. Um, you are a highly respected kilt maker, literally the lady who wrote the book. <laughs> um, how, how does it feel um, as an American practicing a traditional Scottish craft? You know, I, I, think, I think it must be hard for people in Scotland where it's their native culture to see the, the interest and expansion of kilt making and piping and so on and so forth all over the world. But there are people in other countries where they're so proud of their Scottish ancestry. And it's so important to people outside of Scotland to recognize that and show it and so on. Um, that I hope that people in Scotland understand that that's why I, I wrote the book. It's why I care a lot about kilts. It's why I make kilts. That not everybody can get to Scotland. Um, it's a small place compared to the United States. And, uh, and people here uh, wouldn't have that opportunity. And so that's true in Australia, it's true in New Zealand. I sent a kilt to someone in Singapore who was a drummer for a pipe band. And, and I hope in the future that, that everyone everywhere in the world can be happy and proud of people with Scottish heritage showing how much they care about Scottish heritage. But I totally understand that that's difficult. It is, and there's, I think I've gotten, um, let's say mixed reviews um, from Scots that we've interacted with. Some who absolutely love it, that Americans or Canadians or Germans or Australians are embracing their culture and others who are more gatekeepery of like, no, you shouldn't be doing that. It should only be done here. Or why is an American, you know, have any interest in this, you're not Scottish kind of mindset, but you're gonna have that, you know, no matter what the culture, you know, you're always gonna have some kind of split of people who think you should or shouldn't be doing yeah. something. Um, I think I probably catch more flack than you because you're coming from a very, very traditional angle. That's and, you true. Know, you know, and, and, you know, making sure that a traditional craft is, you know, cataloged and, you know, for future kind of thing. But I, I find it very, yeah, I find it interesting the reactions that we get worldwide and I was curious what yours were as well. Yeah, uh, I personally have received very little flack. Good. So, but then again, I don't, I don't interact with people on a, on a regular basis in Scotland besides the people in the mills and they have always been very, very friendly, yeah. very nice, very appreciative of uh, the work that we're doing. Yeah, it's a it's a very small industry. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 funny how many people know each other and work together, and you, the the connections that you don't know are there are there. Yeah. On the back end. Yep. Absolutely. So further to the the non Scottish end. Yeah. The the kilt wearers in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. Um, I know my opinions on it, but I want to know your thoughts. What do you think? makes us tick? Why do we feel this desire, this need to wear kilts, to play the bagpipes, to explore our heritage? That's a really interesting question. I think the kilt question is a particularly interesting one because I've, I've as I mentioned earlier, I've woven tartan and I've, I've given talks to weavers guilds who were very interested in tartan and how it's woven and what it's used for and so on. And as I was putting those talks together, I realized that I can't think of another garment where it's the garment that is the showcase for the fabric. When someone walks up to 
my husband Dave and says something about his kilt, the very first question is, what is that tartan? And that's so true. I, when people walk up, you asked me about this. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. What, is, what is this tartan? Um, and they don't ask who made it. They don't ask where it came from. It doesn't matter who made it primarily. Um, but but it's, a, it's, a, it's a totally distinctive garment that says something about you that is not only heritage, but maybe family or some other kind of connection. So I, th I think it's, it's a rare culture that has that kind of, that kind of a um, connection. Um, so I think it's, I think partly kilts, they're distinctive and they can be personalized in a way that's meaningful to the person and connects to their heritage, even if nobody else in the room knows what that connection is, the person knows what that connection is. A lot of people or a lot of cultures, you know, connect with music or connect with food. And the, the one thing that I will say to, or, and to some degree dress, but to me, kilts and specifically tartan are A, timeless, B, a very, very visceral visual thing mm -hmm that it's an instant recognition um, yeah. versus, and to, to some degree, I'll, I'll, I'll go a slightly odd direction with it. It's something you can buy and you don't have to work, like food, you have to worry about cooking mm -hmm. or understanding how to put it all together. Yeah. Musical instruments, you have to worry about the playing and, and mastering yeah. the yeah. playing, especially bagpipes. Yes. Um, but for a kilt, it's something you can just buy and it's now showcased and everyone instantly knows what it is and why you're wearing it. Yeah, that's right. And there's and there's there's there are characteristics that everybody recognizes as kilt. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of of bagpipes, I don't know, we were talking about this earlier. For many people, bag, bagpipes is a very visceral experience and a positive one. Yeah. That it just it, it makes your heart sing and makes your, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up yep. and get, gives you goosebumps if they're in tune, right? <laughs> if they're not, it gives you worse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty dreadful. Um, and they're unique. And it's something that uh, happens outside, you know? It's, it's the sort of thing you don't have to go to a concert to hear. Um, so I, I, I guess I don't really have a, a very good answer for why it produces that really powerful response in many people, but it certainly does. Yep. And the, the, the breadth of uh, tartans that are coming out either now or have come out that are either universal ones with connections and meaning, family connections and meaning, just pretty tartans that people just design kind of thing, or personal tartans that they want to have their own personal yep. symbol. It's, there's all these different angles that you can come at it all boosting up kilts and tartan. Sure, absolutely. Speaking, since we brought this up and we're gonna get a hundred comments down below, um, what tartan are you wearing? So this, this is um, the lunar tartan. And it was designed in 1969 in honor of the first Apollo moon landing, the Apollo 11 moon landing. And um, it was recorded by the Scottish Tartans Authority and it was then a, um, incorporated into all of the tartans that are in the, the register now. Yep. And so you can go and get the, the, the set for this particular tartan. And uh, I'm a geologist, and uh, I know from having taught planetary geology for many years that the moon is relentlessly gray. And um, when this tartan was designed, there was a black, there was a medium gray, and there was a light gray. Oh, sorry, there was a black, there was a light gray and a brown, and then the red stripe. And I had this tartan custom woven, and when you have a custom weave, you can choose the shade or the mm -hmm. color. And so I asked Doug Leash to substitute a medium gray for the brown, because there's no brown on the moon. So this particular tartan is, um, has the colors of the lunar surface, and then the red is for the rocket flame, right. which is very cool. It's I when when we talked about it earlier, I found it uh, amazing that you know this one was done in 1969. I hadn't thought of many like fashiony type or or symbolic 
tartans, you know, that long ago outside of like district tartans or state tartans or like the Nova That's Scotia right. tartan and things like that. Yep. Um, so it's, I'm, I'm amazed at A, it is that old and B, how much of a contemporary current day feel it has mm -hmm. compared to most of the things that were available at the time. It's a very, very smart looking tartan. I do I like, like that it. one a lot. I like it. And uh, I, I was telling you earlier that, that I had an opportunity to make a kilt in this tartan for astronaut Chell Lindgren, who is the only person who's ever played bagpipes in space. He had his pipes on the ISS. Nice. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. So being a, a bagpiper and a kilt maker um, for as long as you have, this community and dedicating as much of your life to this, you know, you're a, a very accomplished bagpiper as well and playing a bagpipe, a, a, a competition bagpipe band. Um, I don't know if, how many people actually know that about you. Mm. Um, so having dedicated so much of your life to your, the craft of, you know, playing pipes and as well as, you know, kilt making, um, why is this community so important to you? What have you found here? I, I, think, I think there are a couple things that are really important to me. Um, the, the kilt making community, uh, it, it's, for me personally, it's something that's very tangible. It's very tangible. I can get something done and I, I look at it and I say, I really like that one, you know. Um, and you don't get that very often as a professor. It's all very cerebral. <laughs> With right? <your> students, I <laughs> like that one. I don't no, like no, that one. <laughs> no, a lot of it's very cerebral, and so it's not that kind of um, tangible aspect of it. So that's a really important thing to me. And then to be able to share that with other people who get passionate about it is I've made friends that I would never have made and, and, and remain friends um, because of, of that fact that I, I make kilts. Bagpiping. Again, it's it's a community enterprise. If I were by myself, I wouldn't play bagpipes. Uh, in fact, I didn't pick up my pipes from the March of COVID until last December. I was just overwhelmed at, as a professor trying to teach my students in all mm -hmm. these hybrid ways. Um, but part of it was I really missed playing with people and I didn't really wanna play by myself. And I didn't realize just how much I missed that community of music until I went back to the band in December. And I thought, wow, I really missed this. It was, uh, it, it's, that, it's that creative community working on something to try to make it the very best you can make it. I hadn't had that experience before. So in your lifetime, what is the, what is the biggest change that you've seen in Highland Dress? Um, your, your, and my experiences have more been in America than they have been obviously yeah. overseas. Um, but going to Highland Games, um, in, in your band life, what have you seen as the biggest trends or things that have changed? So I, I have to, have to be absolutely clear that even though I was born in the 1950s, I never went to a Highland Games until the 1990s. So there's, there's that very short amount of time right. um, between when I started to go to Highland Games and, and be involved in the bagpipe community and, and today. Um, things have changed a bit in terms of band dress. Um, it's cost so much to outfit a band that bands typically don't change their kilts for 20, 30 years. Um, but the kinds of kilts that they're moving to in terms of tartans <clears throat> is very different. There used to be you know, a lot of Black Watch, and there used to be a lot of Stewart, and so on and so forth. Um, now the, the range of kilt, the range of tartans that bands are using for their kilts has really expanded a lot and, and changed a lot. And so what you see as a band goes down the street is different than you would have seen, say, in the mid-1990s. Our band bought our kilts in the 1990s, and we still have the same ones. Um, but at some point in the future, I'm sure that it will change. So. So the taste in tartans has changed. The m migration away from white hose to thank God <laughs> to uh, to colored hose and particularly black hose, which for bands is dynamite. We have we have black hose, which is is quite good. Um, the rest of the uniform for a, a lot of competition bands is pretty much the same: black vests, white shirts, or light colored shirts, light gray or light blue. 
that really hasn't hasn't changed a, a whole right. lot. Um, in terms of what I see at Highland Games, there certainly is a much wider variety of kilt-like garments at 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 games. You know, there are kilts and there are there are kilts. Kilts, yes, and then. There are the whole variety of utility kilts and, um, and, and so on. Uh, and I'm not saying this in a disparaging way at all at, uh, about, um, about any of these kilts, but there's a huge variety now that both men and women wear. Mm -hmm. Whereas it used to be that mostly what you saw were people wearing quite traditional dress. And you know, that's charming. I'm, I'm totally fine with it, to be absolutely honest. It, uh, chances are pretty good that the people who are wearing $25 kilts wouldn't buy a kilt like the one you're wearing. And if it helps them feel part of the spirit and brings them to games and supports the community, I'm okay with that. Um, I know not everybody is, but I, I, I'm, I, I was just at the Cortez Colorado Highland Games uh, about a month and a half ago. And that's not a big center for the Scottish community. And I think Dave and I probably saw a dozen people in kilts and four, five of them were our family, right? You know? yeah. um, but there were people there who were interested. And you know, who knows, maybe they'll contact High Desert Pipes and Drums and learn how to play the bagpipes or take Highland dance lessons in Albuquerque or something like that. Um, so. I'm happy to have people come and celebrate and hopefully enter the community, regardless yeah. of whether they have Scottish heritage. Our drummer, um, our, one, of our, one of our best drummers, isn't remotely Scottish. And, uh, and yet he's been drumming since he was eight or nine and that should be perfectly okay. As the guest, I'm gonna give you the final thought. What words of wisdom or pearls of wisdom do you have that you want to impart upon us? This doesn't have anything to do directly with Scotland or kilts or bagpipe bands. Okay. But one of the things that's happened since I was a kid um, in the US is that there are many more people who, when they need something, they buy it. Um, when they come home from work, they're on the internet. And they don't have they don't have hobbies. They don't make things as much as people used to. They don't engage in communities of music and things like that, other than as spectators. And I just I just like to say I, I really really encourage people to pick something they're passionate about, and not just be a spectator. Actually get involved, whether it's writing novels, short stories. There are internet communities. Even if you don't know anybody in your hometown that, that does this kind of thing, you can build a community, join a community of people who, who write, um, people who paint, do music. You can take online lessons. You can learn how to do things and, and become good at it. Pick something that's, that's passionate and um, and don't just spend time watching other people. And, and it adds so much to your life, especially as you get older and you want to retire and you realize that, I wish I'd learned how to do a few of these things, knife making or um, you know, archery or you know, whatever it happens to be. That's all I'd say. No, I, I think there's a very valid, very valid thing and it, you, get, you get more out of life when you do know things like that and you do experience and build things with your hands. I yep. couldn't set it better myself. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thanks. Barb, thank you very much for coming out. And anyone out there who wants to learn more about kilt making or wants to pick up the book, go to Amazon and search for The Art of Kilt Making by Barb Tewksbury and Elsie Stumeyer and read the book. You'll understand, you'll get a better appreciation for the craft of kilt making. Barb, again, thank you very much for coming to see us. We appreciate you very much. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Rocky. Until next time, boys and girls, Slanjava. Thanks for joining us. The intro music for Tartan Talk is Irish Coffee by Giorgio DeCampo.
If you want to get social with other kilt enthusiasts, go check out the Kilts and Culture group over on Facebook. You can find USA Kilts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or over at our website, usakilts.com. If you like the show, it would really mean a lot to us if you left a rating since it helps new people find our show. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, Slanjava. Slanjava.